Welcome to the School of Calisthenics podcast with Tim and Jacko. Answering your calisthenics questions, helping you to redefine your impossible. If you want more great content from us, you can find us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And we've got a great YouTube channel where you can get in touch with us and ask your questions there. Let's get into these questions now. All right, welcome back to another Playground session at the School of Calisthenics. We are very excited today to welcome a special guest. Sal Stefano from Mind Pump is joining us on the podcast today. Sal, how are you doing? I'm doing great, fellas. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us. So, Sal, if you could just um, just introduce yourself to our, our listeners and, and tell us a little bit about Mind Pump and what you guys are up to, because it's a really exciting project I think you've got on, which is the, the fitness industry massively needs. Um, so, um, yeah, set it up for us and, and tell us a bit about yourself. Absolutely. So, before I started Mind Pump, uh, I uh, held the world record in marathon running and uh, at the same time was able to squat over 2,000 pounds. So I'm just kidding. That's all baloney. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting. Like, we, yeah. we, we train a, our background does a lot of work in Paralympic sport, and we train a guy who's a double leg amputee, and, and he's run. Well, he actually currently holds a marathon world record for a, a leg amputee and the 200 meter um, sprint record. And I was like, I've I've been touting that around for. That's the only person that I know that can do that. And I thought you just spoiled my whole story. There. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I I'm I'm not, not only am I neither of those, but I'm spectacularly unspectacular in both those. Uh, those, those, those arenas. <laughs> we, we, we do everything in kilos. So I was like, 2,000 pounds. What's that? It's probably about 120 kilos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I carry the two, multiply it times 50. No, I, uh, I, um, you know, I've been in fitness for a very long time. Personally, uh, I started working out at the age of 14, but professionally, I was training clients, and then I started managing uh, major health clubs. So out here in the States, uh, in the 90s, uh, there was a fitness organization. It still exists, but the fi- there was a fitness organization called 24 Fitness, that uh, was the world leader in these kind of mega box, you know, facilities. Um, they were the first fitness organization to be valued at over a billion dollars, and they they pioneered a lot of the way uh, fitness uh, companies or at least gyms uh, really made money and profited. Um, and so I was a part of their their growth, and I was managing these big box gyms. You know, you're talking about you know, 30,000, 40,000 square foot facilities, you know, basketball courts and racquetball courts and swimming pools and gyms, you know, weights and all that stuff at the age of 19. So I'd have these big staffs, 40, 50 people. I was this young kid and, you know, I was kind of this uh, phenom uh, in, in, in this particular realm, you know, managing clubs with, you know, revenue goals of two to $200,000 to $300,000 a month. And I learned quite a bit about, you know, managing fitness, the business of fitness and uh, you know what it really meant to uh, you know to produce a a, a a business that was successful. But I also learned at the same side on the same side the ugly side of fitness. And you know I entered into fitness with a deep passion for people. A lot of times people get confused with you know with my message and say, "Oh, Sal has a, a you know a deep passion for fitness." It's actually not true. I love fitness. Don't get me wrong. Um, it's my favorite hobby. It's uh, something I really love to learn about, but really my passion is people. And, you know, so I enter the fitness industry. I have a deep passion for people. And at some, at a, early on in my career, probably a fi- about five years into it, I realized that a lot of the way we communicated fitness and a lot of the things we did wasn't really truly benefiting anybody. You know, I, I had, I would look at the numbers and realize that the 
the average member would, you know, buy a membership and would use the gym for like three months and then would keep their membership for nine months to a year. So three months active, an additional six, you know, to eight months of just paying us, but never even using the gym. And then they would, you know, they would drop off. And uh, even even the people that did use the gym uh, frequently, people just didn't get long-term results or really get the success. And so I started to kind of, it was tough. It was a tough position to be in. You know, I, I valued my integrity. I valued, you know, helping people. But here I am selling a product and promoting ideas that isn't helping anybody. And so you can, you know, imagine selling a product that you believe in, but then realizing that it's not doing what you think it's supposed to do. Like, how do you rectify that within yourself? So it was a very difficult uh, transition. And, uh, you know, at the age of 22, I opened up a, a wellness and fitness facility. And um, I try, I aim to figure that out. Like, how can I get people like true long-term results. And I really, I started to realize that really it's less about the methods or at least the tools, you know, it's less about lifting weights and doing cardio and diet and more about changing behaviors and the psychology that surrounded that. And, um, I started finding success, uh, long-term success with, with people. And so, you know, then, then I started having you know, clients that would come and, and hire me or work in my facility or work out with other trainers in my facility who then were consistent for five years, six years, a decade or longer. People who would move, you know, and not be able to work out with us, but then we'd stay in contact with them and they'd maintain these new habits on their own. And so I started to figure out like, okay, I think I know what works now. Um, and that was before um, I started Mind Pump with uh, my co-hosts, you know, Adam Schaefer and, and Justin Andrews and Doug uh, Eggy, who's our producer. And we started Mind Pump with the uh, – and the funny thing is I, I hadn't – I'd never known – I didn't meet Adam or Justin before Mind Pump. So it wasn't like we were long, long friends or old friends. Yeah. We met and talked about – and I talked about some of the things that I found – um, you know, to be truth, uh, in fitness. And, uh, they echoed the same thing. They had been in fitness as long as I had, or, or maybe just, just a bit lo- shorter. And, um, they had come to the same conclusions. So we all, you know, re- decided we're going to start a podcast. We're going to be brutally honest and, uh, you know, with, with extreme integrity and humility, um, because fitness information changes so rapidly the odds that we would communicate something that would then later be proved wrong or or relatively high. New information comes out all the time. So we would just be as honest as possible the entire time. And we knew that that might not work. I mean, the, the model in fitness is to sell an idea that revolves around pushing a product like a supplement, a protein powder or bars or whatever. And that's what made money. And the the truth that we had found did not push that narrative at all. In fact, much of our messages, supplements are pretty much a waste of time and money. And a lot of the information you've been told in the past is false. And so it's like, okay, well, we're going to push this information and it's not going to be easy to monetize this this podcast if, yeah, yeah. if it becomes successful in the first place. And we had no idea. Like, okay, we're going to say something completely different. Never really been proven so the odds that it will be successful based off of that are low. 
let's see what happens. It was a massive gamble. Uh, the gamble was we're going to say what we believe to be true and uh, you know the goal would be to build a large audience and then with that large audience, hopefully uh, opportunities would open for us to be able to monetize and turn this into a business because there's no way we'd be able to continue doing this for a long time without making it our business. And so we ran Mind Pump for an entire year without making a single penny. We all worked, we were all entrepreneurs on the side, so we all managed our own businesses. So it was a, it was a lot of work, a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, we, we, our bet turned out, you know, right. The show grew Mm -hmm. extremely rapidly. We're one of the top fitness podcasts now in the world in a very short period of time. And so, um, it worked and and we're real happy uh, that it worked, but it's been, it's been a, it's been a a bumpy, exciting ride along the way. And (laughs) now I get to talk to awesome people like yourselves for a living, which, you know, I can't believe I still make money doing this. Pretty crazy. (laughs) Guilty as charged. Talking about trying to do something different within the fitness space. I think, um, with the, with, with calisthenics, which we've obviously jumped into sort of four years ago where, we just started doing it ourselves out of, out of a way of sort of a new form of training, just something that was a bit interesting, just exploring around doing some bodyweight training as opposed to lifting weights, which we'd both done plenty of in the past. Both played rugby, which that for in America is like um, American football, but without any helmets and, and uh, pads on. Oh yeah, um, I know exactly what that is. Good sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now rugby's getting a bit bigger in in America, I think, isn't it? With like the the sevens team is pretty good. You, you know, the irony but, um, of, the irony of rugby is that it's uh, people think, oh my god, it's so much more dangerous because there's no pads. And yeah, you do get more of the you know cuts and bruises and maybe broken bones, but yeah. the head trauma is much lower <laughs> because you guys tackle differently because you don't have the, the 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 helmet that gives you the false sense of protection. So you don't yeah, you don't tackle yeah. the same, do you? Well, this is, I think it depends on how you did it because I actually retired from a head injury because I had um, oh shit I had uh, yeah I had a, <laughs> um, a seizure on the pitch after uh, too many head knocks so I'm sort of falling into that category of uh, <laughs> oh. what happened in the NFL with all the concussion stuff. But well, you um, still, that's, a, that's a different story. You still sound pretty uh, bright, so I'm sure you're okay. <laughs> yeah, I think you're I'm not looking like, at him, so you can't <laughs> see him. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but just we just wanted to uh, one of the questions about like you guys obviously. Um, do plenty of like weights and resistance training, but you've also got your body weight programs and how you mix those two things together and what benefits you guys have seen through your, um, through your body weight programs and, and how people, what, what are the, like, what are the main sort of draws and benefits that you see from being able to, to just, um, just train without weights, without a gym. Oh, I mean, um, the, body weight. Oh, absolutely. Like, you know, there's, there's a reason why we have uh, muscles, right? Muscles move us through space. Um, they allow us to both lift things, but also to manipulate and control and lift our bodies. And both are skills. And here's the thing about strength that a lot of people don't necessarily realize. There's just as much, if not more, skill involved with strength as there is just brute muscle contractive force. So people think, yeah. oh, my muscles can contract and that's what gives me the strength because, you know, I have these big muscles that can contract harder than if they were smaller. And yeah, there's some definitely some truth to that, but there's there's a another element that's missed that is actually probably more important and that's the skill of strength. So, for example, I'll give you an example. 
um, if you were to you know uh, if you were to throw an object far, like let's say we're going to throw a baseball or a football, or if you were to you know kick a soccer ball, or you, you would there's definitely an, uh, an element of strength that's required to generate force to to accelerate the ball to produce some speed. But boy, is there a lot of skill involved. And, you know, a, a bodybuilder with massive quadriceps and hamstrings and glutes and, you know, core muscles isn't going to be able to kick a, a ball nearly as far as a, you know, a high-level, you know, soccer player, right? Because the soccer yeah. player's got that skill. Now, that's, that's an extreme example, but that actually can be applied towards pretty much anything you do. Um, it reminds me of, you know, when I was a kid, in the summers, I would go work with, um, I would go work uh, hard labor construction. So I'd work with stone workers and construction workers. And a lot of these, these men were older, some of them in their fifties and sixties. And I was a, you know, 17 year old, 18 year old strapping young man. I'd been lifting weights for, you know, four years at this point. I was pretty strong, definitely stronger than these men in the gym. Like we'd go in the gym at I would, I would, you know, I'd crush them in a, in a barbell squat or a deadlift or a curl or whatever. But when we would go out into the to work and we had to, you know, lift stone or mix cement or do something that involved some sort of skill, these guys would blow me. I mean, they would just destroy me. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I we couldn't. Call that man strength. <laughs> you know, and it's funny that you know, old man strength. You got to, you got to think about that. Now that's yeah. a very true thing. Like any young man who's ever wrestled with his dad or uncle will tell you. <laughs> that that exists. Like there's, there's that old man strength where you go wrestle with your 50 year old dad and you're much more fit and strong, but he kicks your ass. Well, (laughs) the reason why he's kicking your ass is he's been in his body a lot longer than you have. So he's just got a lot more control over his body and there's a lot more skill and he's got, he's better with the skill aspect of how to apply that strength. And it, you know, another example is when you see a, a kid, you know, go through puberty and just, you know, like a 16-year-old kid who becomes this massive kid all of a sudden, but he's clumsy. He can't move yeah. very well, right? Because he doesn't have the skill involved. So strength is as much, if not more, tied to skill than it is to just the brute strength. Now, body weight training works on a different type of skill than lifting weights does. And they're both very important to developing a healthy, fit, functioning body. They're both extremely important. Um, I would even venture to say in some respects, if you're looking for joint health and body awareness, that properly applied body weight training may in fact even be more important than resistance training. Now, the, the drawback to uh, calisthenic type training or what I should say the the, the the difficult parts of it is because so much skill is, can be involved in in mastering those movements, uh, It's sometimes it's more difficult to start someone off doing those when they're beginners, or at least there may be less tools available to you depending on the context or the individual. So if I get a beginner really poorly, you know, poor muscle connection, mm-hmm. you, know, uh, you know, a machine, a cable, a band, a light dumbbell might give me more flexibility than body weight type training but you but you better believe I'm going to utilize both of them because they're both very important and I'll extend this even to people who solely rely on on weights like bodybuilders and powerlifters who's you know uh you know powerlifter for example is going to lift a barbell a bodybuilder just wants to develop individual muscle groups and look a particular way yeah you know if you start incorporating movements, resistance movements that require a skill that you don't necessarily have, you're going to develop your central nervous system to a higher degree, which is then going to carry over to your, 
you know, let's say your more important aspects of training, which in the case of a bodybuilder, a powerlifter, maybe barbell training. And mm-hmm. so you're missing out on that carryover because you're so stuck in your tribe or your, you know, hard-headed, I only do weights mentality. You're really missing out. And I think fitness, you know, is, and it's not immune to tribalism. You know, you see that in almost every aspect of life where people are like, you know, diets like that, right? I'm a vegan yeah. or I'm a, I eat keto and it's like their religion, you know, or, I, you know, I use kettlebells or I do body weight training or I do barbell mm-hmm. training. There is so much carryover and so much to gain from allowing your body to go through the process of adapt, adapting to these different skills that if you don't incorporate at least some of those other things or try to learn some of them, you are doing yourself a major disservice. You're only slowing your progress down. So, yeah. you know, it's something we try to talk about a lot on the show. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think we, we find that when we're taking people on a, a journey to learn to handstand or, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a, a human flag or something like that, it's actually the skill component of, of calisthenics that people really like because the skill acquisition as, as adults, maybe we don't do so much of that anymore because we get, like you say, entrenched in, in training a certain way. So exposing yourself to try and balance on your hands for the first time, it's really exciting because the the new adaptation and the and the neural learning happens really quickly. So literally in the space of a week, you can make some quite significant progress. And anybody that's, that's sort of like got a good strength training background and has spent a good few years underneath the barbell knows that it gets really difficult after a period of time to start to add more weight to that bar. And it can be plugging away for months to try and increase a one RM and all these kind of different things. So the, a lot of people get stuck in the the skill acquisition, we call it a movement patterning component of, of calisthenics because it's, ex- it's exciting, it's kind of sexy. But what we find we're doing a lot of times is saying to people, they, they come to us and like, why can't I do this handstand push-up? And we go, well, you're just not strong enough. You haven't done enough strength work. We constantly driving people. And the interesting thing from what you said is that from a, from a, from people who are doing a lot more sort of resistance based training or, um, more strength work with barbells, dumbbells, kettlebells, whatever it might be, they're doing a lot of the strength based work, but don't have the skill component as part of that. And we're very much around. One thing we really like about calisthenics is it's, it's, it's to, to be good at it. You need a, you need a perfect harmony of both those things. You need to do the skill acquisition because you've got to move in a way you haven't learned to do before. But you've also got to put a huge amount of force down in those positions, um, and that makes it quite exciting. I think for to, when you can combine those two things and and start to really feel like you're you're progressing as an as an athlete or however you sort of term yourself as a, as a day-to-day athlete or, or general um, general person who just trains is to learn those new things and, and get strong at the same time is one thing that we really like about about calisthenics oh no doubt no doubt I mean you know here's the thing too a lot of people I'd say most people when they first start training or exercising the main motivation I would say is aesthetic right like I just want to lose weight or I want to build muscle. And so the secondary thing that they think about is I want to be able to move better. So I want to be able to move better or whatever. So people are really attracted to movement, tend to have a more open mind with trying different things because they, they immediately see the the results or the carryover. People who just want to focus on the aesthetics may not see it as obviously, but I'll even make this argument. Like here's the thing, even with bodybuilding, let's talk about bodybuilding, the least, probably the least functional resistance training based uh you know sport that there is like body mm-hmm. bodybuilders don't give a shit typically about function except for you know how it applies to how they look they really don't care about anything else it's just how they look and there's a lot of people like that they just go to the gym because they want to look good well here's the deal if you have an area of your body that you're having difficulty developing 
which is common, very common. You talk to the average guy or girl and you, you know who lifts weights and you say, hey, which body part has, do you have a tough time developing? They'll be able to rattle off at least one, if not more, right? You know, like, oh, I can't build yeah, my- calves. Yeah, I can't build <laughs> my, my butt or my calves or I can't build my, my chest or my back or my triceps or whatever. So there's always a body part or two or, or, or more that seem to be more difficult to develop than the rest of the body. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to muscle building potential, your potential to build your entire body is relatively the same. In other words, how you build one muscle is how all the muscles can build. So when you have a weak body part, it's not because there's a this biological limiting factor in your calves that for whatever reason is not allowing you to develop your calves or this biological develop you know uh, reason that you can't develop a chest. Um, there may be, but a very, very small, uh, it's a very small effect. The larger effect is the lack of connection to that muscle or the lack of ability to fire that muscle. So if somebody says, man, I can't develop my pecs, my chest, but I'm doing all the bench press and incline pressing that, you know, that, that I can do because I know those are supposed to be the best exercises, but I can't build my chest. When you go and examine how their muscles fire, even if they're really strong, they could be a tremendous bench presser, you'll find that their connection to their chest isn't uh, as good as, say, their connection to their shoulders and triceps and other muscles that are moving the bar. And they've just developed a recruitment pattern that's more ideal and for them or whatever that they've relied upon that allows them to move heavy weight that doesn't necessarily activate their chest very well. Mm -hmm. And one of the remedies to that is to connect or learn to connect uh, to that the, the muscle that's weak and then start to train that muscle and then boom, you know, like, like magic, that muscle mm -hmm. starts to develop. And that is a central nervous system function. That is literally, which by the way, the central nervous system plays the largest role in your ability to develop muscles. And I'm talking about just the aesthetic. We're not even talking about functional. For functional, yeah. that's an easy argument that the central nervous, central nervous system plays a huge role. But to develop muscle, it's a, it's a more important role than anything else. So your lack of connection to those muscles is is largely, I'd say easily 90% of the reason why you can't develop those weak muscles. So how then do we develop a better connection to those muscles? Learn a new skill. So mm -hmm. if I'm going and I'm trying to do a handstand push-up or a flagpole or I'm trying to use the rings or whatever, and I've never done those things before, I'm going to notice uh, that obviously I have the strength to do them. I just don't have the control or the skill to do them. Well, really what that translates to is my central nervous system is just not connecting to the muscles in the most efficient, effective way possible to give me the ability to perform this movement. The muscles are strong enough. I just don't have the, the central nervous system doesn't, isn't, isn't learning the skill yet or doesn't know the skill yet. So as I practice these body weight movements that I'm not good at, obviously, like I'm a strong bodybuilder. I can overhead press 200 pounds or 300 pounds with a barbell, but you know, try and ask me to do a handstand push-up or even just support myself with handstands. It's not going to happen. Even though I'm strong enough to do so, I just can't do it. So as I learn the skill of doing that, I am connecting to my body and to muscles differently than I ever have before. I'm learning a new skill. My central nervous system is literally learning how to support my body differently. Now, when I go do these overhead presses or these chest presses or all these exercises, all of a sudden I'm connecting differently yeah. to my body and that will translate into more muscle or better muscle development. So even from a purely aesthetic standpoint, 
the the you know some focus on calisthenics or some focus on body weight training is going to benefit me. And this is important because in order to communicate the effectiveness of what you're communicating, you have to be able to sell it properly. And when I communicate this to, to aesthetic-minded individuals, a light bulb goes off and next thing you know, they're training with body weight stuff in conjunction with the resistance training. And then I'm getting emails and messages from people who are like, oh shit, I had no idea that if I started doing body weight training, that I, I would build more muscle. Like, oh my God, I, this, I had no idea there would just be this kind of carryover because in their mind, they thought that it, in terms of aesthetics, well, I'm doing everything for aesthetics. I'm just lifting weights and that calisthenic stuff's not going to contribute. Uh, obviously false, obviously false. You start incorporating those, watch what happens to the way your body looks. Yeah, and that, that whole concept around being able to um, activate a muscle before you want to be able to make it strong um, is only the same thing that like a physio would do after you got injured. We need to start look at like recruiting muscle before in terms of those firing patterns before we can actually then make it strong. And and, and what's we've really found interesting in calisthenics is, as Tim was talking about the skill component, we, we've got different phases to our framework that we train for calisthenics. And, and one of the really important parts early doors is the movement, pat- what we call movement patterning, which is that, that activation, that, that neuromuscular connection and, trying to learn um, to do a human flag where the bottom arm's got to push and the top arm's got to pull and those two opposite forces creating torque. Yes, they've got to be very strong and, and large forces to hold your body up. But at first, you don't even know how to do those two things. Like your brain just can't figure it out. So we take complex movements like that and actually break them down um, and work on, like you just said then, like... Um, Rather from an aesthetic point of view, it's from a from a, a skill acquisition. What can you? What can we actually do? But we're looking at um, creating exercises and movements broken down so that we can create the right movement pattern. Oh yeah, I mean, create the right movement pattern. Then before, then we can start to link it together and then start to build the strength on top of that. And that that for us is a really um, well, we we've, we saw it for ourselves. This whole thing, the, the scorecard sense grew for us um, organically. We just we started doing it ourselves. We were absolutely rubbish when we started because we had no gymnastics experience or anything like that. And um, we actually, you know, two two ex rugby players that were pretty broken from that. And we we were so bad when we started. Everyone just sort of laughed at us in our gym when we were messing about with it. And then we only started coaching and teaching it because people started saying. Um, you know, well, okay, now you can do a flag like we show me how to do it, and um, it sort of just evolved from there. So, um, oh, it's brilliant. That's the sort of really exciting part we find for people. I'm very passionate as well, or we both are, about the the picking up on the aesthetic thing that you said. That um, when I finished, I used to lift weights for for the outcome of playing rugby and being being stronger, more powerful, faster. And I always loved training and always loved like the weightlifting part of the training. Um, but when I retired and that the the reason for it was taken away, I actually found that my motivation to train really dropped off. Um, and then having the, the what the calisthenics gave me was um, a, an, an outcome, uh, a goal, something that I'm working towards. I'm training to be able to do a human flag. And there's my sort of, there's my end point, there's my motivation. And that that is more about what can my body do rather than what can my body look like? Because there's a number of factors that are going to affect aesthetically what you look like, you know, your genetics, what you're eating, all that sort of thing. Um, and ultimately with body weight training, like the better your strength to weight ratio, the easier some of these things are going to be. So it's your own benefit to be 
lighter almost for as, as strong as you can be. Oh, it's, um, it lends itself extremely well to aesthetics. I mean, mentally, you know, like trying to strive to look a certain way compared to striving to be able to do something. I just feel quite passionately about how mentally that's a good state of mind to be in and, and thinking towards your training rather than just having a complex around my biceps aren't big enough to fill my t-shirt. We, we, when thing. I watched the Olympics in, uh, in Rio, the American gymnastics team came out and the biceps on those boys <laughs> is ridiculous. And they're not in the gym doing bicep curls, they're doing rope climbs and ring work and it, it goes back to they're just shifting their body weight under extremely, or in positions which create a huge amount of tension and they do it a lot. But they've got shoulders and arms that you would flip and kill for. Yeah, oh, we, we we talk about that on the show all the time. I, I you know I, I did a po- I did a post a while ago that got a lot of attention on my Instagram page, where I said uh, you know which one will build bigger biceps, and I put pull ups versus curls, and you know there was a and I made the argument, and I I'll, I'll make this argument all day long, and I'll I'll challenge anybody that the average person, and I say average because there's always uh, outliers, but the average person. Will if they focus on getting stronger on a pull-up, they'll build bigger arms than if they just focused on doing curls. Mm. And uh, the evidence is the evidence is it's pretty uh, it's pretty evident when you look at people who pull their bodies up for a living versus you go see people who just do curls. Uh, it's it's pretty evident. You know these compound type movements they uh, they create more tension on the muscles. They uh, send a louder anabolic signal to the body because it's a it's a gross motor movement. So doing a pull up involves a lot more uh, a, lo- a lot more muscles. Involves a louder CNS signal. It uh, it sends a a louder hormonal response. It causes more of the you know the damage that that tends to signal the body to adapt. Then single joint movement. So it's the same thing as comparing like a leg extension to a barbell squat. Uh, you know, you're going to build bigger quads doing the barbell squat. Well, you'll build bigger biceps doing a pull-up. And this message is, it's funny that it's even controversial. And the funny thing is, you know, the old-time bodybuilders, if you go back to the turn of the century uh, or the 19, you know, the, the, the 20th century, the turn of the 20th century, this is when uh, lifting weights really started to, you know, become a thing. You had strong men who would travel the country or travel America, uh, you know, demonstrating their strength and you know, they started to really put together what builds a strong, uh, you know, healthy physique. And this is before anabolic steroids were invented, or at least before anybody ever used them. So you had these guys who were, I mean, before this is before protein powder, forget steroids. Mm. There weren't even, there wasn't even protein powder. And what did people do for this? <laughs> yeah. Well, here's, here's what they did. They trained the whole body. They trained full body uh, a few days a week, so there was more frequency of training. So body yeah. bodybuilders tend to do body part splits, where you know Monday is chest, Tuesday is back, and which for the most part, the average individual, eighty five percent of people will 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 not build nearly as much muscle on a body part split as they will on a full body routine. This is a mm. this is a verifiable fact. Studies have already proven it. I've learned this over twenty years of training individual. You take the average person, put them on a full body routine three days a week, they'll build more muscle and strength than if they did a body part split. So that's number one. And that's yeah. the way they trained back in those days. They also didn't lift to failure. What I mean by that is there's this popular notion that was developed out of the steroid culture where if you lift weights to absolute failure, it's more effective. And in the context of being on anabolic steroids, that may be 
true, although I'll argue that's probably not even true for them. But for the average individual, training to failure is actually counterproductive. And again, verifiable by study. This have actually compared this head-to-head, and they find that lifting to absolute failure is not more effective and is, act- uh, is essentially uh, less effective, actually builds less muscle. So you want to train intensely. You just don't want to go to failure. You want to have a, a high level of frequency of training your body. So you don't want to hit your legs and your chest once a week. You want to hit them probably two or three days a week. Training the whole body seems to be more effective. And these are what the old timers did. They trained the whole body. They wouldn't go to failure. They would practice these big gross motor movement lifts and they would incorporate body weight lifts. Now these men, you know, at the turn of the century who were all natural, didn't take supplements, uh, first of all, they looked phenomenal. You could look up pictures of them online. They looked incredible. Yeah. They looked better than any you know average gym rat that you'll find, definitely. Um, and the, the, the feats of strength that they performed were fucking mind-blowing. You had people like Eugene Sandow, who had, was a, a, under 200-pound under body weight, so 185 pounds was on average how much he weighed, who would do a one-arm bent press. So this was a this is a, a one-arm overhead press, and there's a, there's a technique to it where you kind of bend at the side and press this thing you know, with mm-hmm. one arm, right? And this is a barbell, by the way, not a dumbbell. So a long barbell. Imagine the balance and skill involved with doing that. And he would go around the country doing this with 300 pounds in one arm. Yeah. So you tell yeah, – that, that's insane. That's absolutely insane. These men were so strong uh, and so functional and so muscular, and they had a lot of – uh, wisdom because they weren't clouded with you know anabolic steroids and all this other and they weren't the information that they were providing wasn't geared to sell p- supplements because they didn't have any it was just what worked and what they figured that worked out for them as far as diet was concerned these guys were eating plenty of you know uh, fats saturated fats and cholesterols and they were eating an adequate amount of protein but not the exorbitant ridiculous amounts of protein that the supplement companies will have you believe you need to eat where you're, you know, you're taking, you know, 10, 15 scoops of protein powder a day and, you know, shitting your brains out or farting up a storm. These guys were eating, you know, red meat and egg yolks and full mm-hmm. fat dairy. And, and, you know, again, science has confirmed that that's actually what gives you the kind of results that you're looking for. That's where you want to look. And that's what, what works. That's kind of what we talk about on the show and it's really incorporating all those things that's going to give you the results you're looking for. And you're talking about, you know, being able to move better. You know, if you chase the aesthetic, if that's all you ever do, you might get the aesthetic results, but you're probably going to end up with bad health and a poor relationship with your body and, and some body image yeah. issues. And trust me, just as many men suffer as this from women, go into any gym and you'll see a bunch of dudes walking around uh, like they have, uh, you know, watermelons under their arms and posturing like they're, you know, trying to show off their you know, because they all have these body image issues. You you chase the aesthetics, you're going to end up and you'll probably end up in a poor, in a bad area. If you chase- you end up old and wrinkly anyway. That's right. <laughs> but, it, but if you chase the performance, there's of course, dis, there's this dysfunction that can happen from that as well. But what does a guy look like who can move really well, who can perform lots of these, you know, difficult body weight movements, who can squat a good amount, who can barbell deadlift and overhead press a, d- a decent amount- who can handle his body weight and maybe two times or three times his body weight with certain barbell lifts, what does that person probably look like? They're going to look the way most people want to look. Like the aesthetics are going to follow for sure. And you kind of need to be healthy anyway. Like you're not going to be able to do a lot of the, a lot of these skills if you're unhealthy, you know, if you're, you're, you're 
feeding yourself incorrectly or whatever. So mm-hmm. I tend to venture towards the health and performance route than the just aesthetic route yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting stuff that you said there. So and I, I look back at some of the pictures of the old school strongmen and, and these guys are doing handstands and they're doing single arm handstands and they're big dudes. Um, and like you said, phenomenally strong. And it's interesting that you, you made, I was going to tell you about a bit of an experiment that we did this week. So, um, I come from a background, as Dave was saying, with rugby. I've had two shoulder reconstructions, slap lesions, tears in the in the in the labrum over probably a period of about six or eight years, and, and multiple dislocations along the way. So, my reasons for learning calisthenics originally, I'm, I've been a strength and conditioning coach for the last ten years, working with professional athletes, done a lot of like strength training, max strength training, power training, tried it all, and I thought I'd done all the rehab stuff in the book as well around. Uh, trying to trying to fix a, a, a shoulder which wouldn't stay attached to my body, um, so I decided to learn to handstand on the basis that if my shoulder, if I could handstand, that would give me some confidence that my shoulder was stable, um, and that kind of was the start of the calisthenics journey. Um, so I've been sort of like pushed into handstand push-ups, and I can handstand push-up and, and I get, get, use my feet against the wall, but real deep handstand push-ups. So we decided that we would try and see what my overhead press would be like. Um, so to see what I could do, now, I reckon before that, as again coming from the point of some some pretty dodgy shoulder history, I, I probably weigh well, I weigh, we weighed in on, on last week when I did it, seventy four kilos. I'm not a big guy, mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't that we were filming for the day, so we had we had quite a lot on, so we were trying to get through some uh, through some videos. So I ended up trying let's go one RM overhead shoulder press, having not lifted a barbell in in four years, and managed to push seventy five. It wasn't great technique because it, it very much felt a little bit like that. Um, like that skill side of just moving a weight which is distributed slightly different to my body weight is um was a bit of a challenge and probably interestingly for me that was probably the most amount of weight i've lifted overhead um yeah, it was a pb for it was a pb yeah having yeah, not lifted a barbell in, in weights f- for four years in four years um even though i thought i had 80 kilos in me but um <laughs> i was a bit disappointed not to hit a little bit more but interesting that this this from what you were saying before, you've got these guys that are supremely strong, but training in a much more complete and holistic way. So they're, they're, they're regularly hitting body parts. They're doing some, 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 maybe some gymnastics or some calisthenics type movements, their diets on point, And it's pretty based back to the, back to the basics of training. And then, but somewhere along the way, the fitness industry went and got all complicated and it's become training as big diet has become this whole thing, which is super complicated, um, by various different options that people have got and what should eat, what you shouldn't eat and, and all that sort of stuff and training has gone the same way i'm interested um from your perspective having a long time in the in the industry like, what do you think it's is it is it um commercial aspect which has driven some of that stuff that, that people have jumped on board and they've, they've led us to believe certain things to be true that aren't or is it poorly researched people that are just spitting information which they, they learn from the biggest dude in the gym like how where do you think sort of this has gone wrong because it's a minefield trying to sort through for people that, that we, we, we you and I and, and, and Jacko and, and your team as well you have the fortunate um, opportunity to spend some time in the game and, and sift out what is good and what is bad information and, and prove that through opportunity to work with clients but for people that are, are just sort of consuming what what the fitness industry is is putting out there it's a real difficult thing for them to, to understand what is truth how do you think the fitness industry how do we get in the state that we're at now what's happened well um usually if you follow the money you can see a lot of the motives behind uh, the information that we're providing so for the longest time the the way you got information uh, in regards to fitness and nutrition was through uh, these muscle building and strength uh, magazines. So these magazines were 
put out. They were the, the first the first you know organizations, if you will, to give fitness information. And they started in the nineteen, I believe the first ones were fifties, maybe forties, fifties, and then the you know sixties, seventies, and, <coughs> and and then so on. Now these magazines were. Of course, they want to sell magazines, so that's number one, but that's okay, right? You can just give information and sell magazines. But then they figured out that the real money was in selling products. Like, you're, if you can sell products, uh, you're going to do a lot, you're going to make a lot more money than selling a magazine where the margins aren't that, aren't nearly as big and all that stuff. And so these magazines were really massive sales brochures since, since almost since day one. The, 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 they were designed to, sell products. And the way they had sold products was to sell athletes. So, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger in there, let's make him popular. Let's make him, you know, the, the, the spokesperson. And then he's going to sell ideas that are then going to sell uh, products. So I'll give you a great example. So there's a common uh, belief uh, that eating, you know, six or seven small meals throughout the day is going to result in more fat loss and more muscle building. And that's a common one. Like you talk to your average, you know, gym goer and you ask him, you know, hey, is it is it better to, for me to eat all my calories in two or three meals or should I break it up into into six meals? And they'll say, oh, for sure. The average one will say, you know, break it up into six meals. And they'll say something like, if you eat small meals, you utilize more of the protein and you'll burn more body fat because it's going to stoke your metabolism. And, you know, they're going to repeat a bunch of, you know, taglines and they're going to pair a bunch of stuff that they've heard or, you know, that's been passed down. Well, uh, I was shocked to learn years ago that none of that, zero, was based on any evidence at all. None of it. Yeah. In fact, in fact, the evidence actually demonstrates the opposite. If you feed yourself too frequently with protein, you actually desensitize your body to protein. Not unlike, you know, getting insulin, uh, uh, you know, resistance from eating sugar too often. Like your body starts to, you give it too much protein. It utilizes less of it for what your body needs protein for, which is repair, recover, and building. And you end up using more of it for just turning into energy, you know, glyco, glyconeogenesis or whatever. Mm. So, so there's that. The second thing is, uh, you know, uh, if you uh, feed yourself too, too frequently, you can also promote a, uh, uh, lots of inflammation in the body, which is probably not beneficial uh, for muscle building or fat loss. And in the context of you know, digestive issues and disorders, which seem to be so common nowadays, probably a bad idea. Um, and we're also learning that eating less frequently is probably better for you hormonally, encourages fat loss. Um, and as I said before, is going to, you're going to utilize protein a little bit more efficiently, which probably means uh, more muscle. And it's more convenient. Like, you know, I used to do that. I used to carry six meals with me everywhere I went. What a pain in the ass that was, right? <laughs> so, but, but, but now, now think to yourself, why are they promoting the idea that you need to eat six meals a day? Well, if, if they can sell that to you, then you're going to try doing that and you're going to realize what a pain in the ass it is. So you're going to try and figure out a way to make that more convenient, which usually means I'm going to eat two or three meals that are food, real food, and I'm going to supplement two or three powders or bars. Mm -hmm. So they know selling that idea is going to sell more bars and more powders. And in fact, that's exactly what it did. Now think of the other things that they've sold to you. You need to have protein right after you work out, right? They, they make it such a big fucking deal. Like, like that is more important than the workout itself. I have literally seen bodybuilders freak out because they couldn't eat 
you know, an hour after the workout. Like their whole workout was a waste and they're going to lose all this muscle. Mm. I've seen bodybuilders eat food in the gym right after the workout. They'll bring their Tupperware out of the, out of the locker room and sit there and <laughs> eat their, their chicken and rice. Talk about dysfunction, right? And it's, again, based on very little to zero science. Now, uh, is eating right after your workout going to benefit you if you're going to work out again a couple hours later? Yeah, yeah, probably. Is it going to benefit you otherwise? You know, if, if you're doing one workout a day, no. Your body replenishes glycogen just as just as effect, effectively as it do, as it would if you had it right after, or if you had it two or three mm. hours later. Now, why would they push that you need to have some protein right away after your workout? Well, again, convenience. You're likely to drink a protein shake right after your workout. In fact, yeah, they push the narrative that the faster you can get amino acids into your bloodstream right after your workout for that anabolic window, which, by the way, is an invented term that they created. Mm -hmm. They know that they can sell you a powder because a powder is a powder. You don't have to digest it as much. You can absorb this protein so much faster. Boom, all of a sudden, more protein powder sales. The irony of all this is in the context of inflammation, which exercise promotes, uh, if you work out, you are creating an inflammatory state in your body. It's temporary, of course, but... When you're working out, if we were to test your blood right afterwards, you'd see elevated levels of you know, C-reactive protein and other types of inflammatory markers. Mm-hmm. And the reason why you get stronger is your body recognizes the stress and then adapts and tries to become more resilient later on. But for all intents and purposes, you're inflamed for about an hour after your workout, including your gut. Okay, Your whole body, there's systemic, systemic inflammation going on. So now your gut is inflamed. Probably the worst time to eat food is right after your workout – especially if it's going to be processed something, which the protein powder is about as processed as it gets. I don't know why they call it a health food. It's literally, <laughs> it's literally a powder that's flavored like, you know, you know, strawberry shortcake or some weird shit. So yeah. <laughs> you know, it's engineered food. So you're throwing this engineered, quickly digestible food into an inflamed gut. Now you've got protein particles or molecules passing through the gut when they're not supposed to. Your body recognizes those as uh, foreign invaders, you develop intolerances or antibodies to them. Now you've been lifting weights for five to 10 years. All of a sudden, I don't know what's happening. I can't have dairy anymore. I used to be able to have dairy, no problem. Now every time I have a whey protein shake, my stomach is bloated and I feel like shit. Well, guess what? You gave yourself a food intolerance because you've been having protein shakes right after your intense infla- mm. inflammatory producing workouts for the last five to 10 years consistently. So it's hilarious how incorrect and inaccurate this information is and how counterproductive it is. But when you follow the money, you realize like, oh, they're promoting these ideas because it sells products. As far as the body part split you know, paradigm is considered, you know, well, that came from, first of all, it sells equipment uh, and makes you want to go to the gym because if I'm doing 15 sets for biceps on Monday – well, I'm going to do my big, you know, uh, bicep builders first, right? My barbell curls, my dumbbell curls, which are, you know, probably, you know, besides heavy pulling movements, you know, in terms of isolation exercises, those are really the ones that are going to build your biceps, right? But now I'm, you know, I've got, I don't know, you know, eight sets left in my workout and my biceps are fried. Oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go do a bunch of these machines that I can mm. look at. I'm going to do all my finisher movements. This is what bodybuilders say. Do your finisher movements. So then they do their machine curls and their cable curls. And I, you know, I, I move my elbow at 90 degrees behind my back while my foot up is in the air, whatever curls or whatever they're doing because they're fatigued and because they need more of this, you know, variety. Well, body part split routines promote that. If you train the whole body, you know, if I train my biceps for 15 sets on Monday, I'm going to end up doing 
seven to eight sets of a bunch of useless bullshit exercises on machines just because that's the way mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm fatigued. If I take that 15 sets for my biceps and I split it up three days, so I do five sets on Monday, five sets on Wednesday, five sets on Friday, same total volume uh, that I'm doing during the week, but I'm probably going to pick the best exercises, right? Because each time I start the workout, I've only got five sets, I'm fresh. Well, I'm going to go do the the big ones that are the most effective. So I'm not going to use as many machines and cables anyway. People tend to go in that direction. So that body part split routine was promoted to sell equipment. Now, it also works for a lot of people on anabolic steroids because when you're on steroids, you're in this constant anabolic state, right? You've got this loud testosterone signal telling your body to build muscle, whether you work out or not. I mean, if I put te- if I put the average man on you know, a hundred times testosterone levels that they're, you know, which is, which is low compared to what bodybuilders take. But if I give a man, you know, 200 milligrams of, of testosterone, which bodybuilders are taking, you know, you know, three, four, five times that amount at least, but let's say I give someone 200 milligrams, that's a good, you know, 50 times more than his body's producing. And if I don't even have him lift any weights, he's going to build muscle. It's a, it's a, it's a Mm -hmm. muscle building signal by itself. So if you've got this loud muscle building signal from taking anabolic steroids, I'm going to build muscle in spite of the fact that my workout is probably not as effective. So body part splits now become effective by default. You see what I'm saying? So yeah, yeah. You, you combine all these things and you, you start to realize, oh, wow, a lot of the information we've been fed is complete bullshit. And the, you know, the cool thing about uh, the internet and technology is people are starting to realize like, you know, three years ago when we were talking about full body workouts uh, for bodybuilding, people were laughing at us. They were saying, oh, that's just for mm-hmm. beginners. Now I'm starting to see a lot mm-hmm. of the, you know, bodybuilder influencers start to talk about those things as well because it just fucking works. You know what I mean? It yeah. just works, bottom line. Yeah, I think it's really interesting you talk about that because a lot of the stuff that we 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 sort of we answer questions and we 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 try and get back to is calisthenics often a real um, the most natural form of training. People got strong using their body weight for for decades for millennia, like we've we've talked about. One thing I just wanted to ask you, um, so before we kind of wrap it up, was just around. Um, it's interesting you made that point about training to with what you said before about training to failure in that we, with calisthenics we take a pull-up for example and i'm doing a bit of hypertrophy work at the moment so pull-ups is in my set and i've got some some longer duration eccentric work going on and i mix it with some volume but what i find is um i get to a point with pull-ups where i literally can't do anymore because it's not i don't have an easier option necessarily to go back to unless i start using some resistance bands for some support so my question would be in that, in that sense going back to what you said before about training to failure Say that I've got 10 sets or 10 reps, sorry, and doing three or four sets. If I get to a point with a pull-up exercise where I can't hit the number of reps that I want to do, would you opt then to go for something like use a resistance band to provide some support or would you go for cluster sets? And to, uh, Because obviously kind of that overlaps a little bit of like where do we draw the line yeah. around that train to failure? They're all they're all viable. I mean, all of those are viable techniques, but I'll, I'll circle this back to you, right? So let me ask you a question. Let's say you had somebody who's like who needs to be able to do they want to be able to do five pull-ups, but at the moment all they can do is three, right? Mm. So three pull pull-ups is the most. Which one do you think will result in a faster uh, in faster progress or or better results in terms of the goal of being able to do five pull-ups? If they go to failure with their pull-ups once a week or if they just do one or two pull-ups every single day? 
Yeah, yeah, that, and that's a conversation that we've had a lot around learning complex movements like the front lever. Are we actually better off using like a, a pretty full-on exercise and just touching base with that on a regular <laughs> basis to give that stimulus and keep that system, that give it something to work with, or you're gonna, do you go and hammer it and, and put yourself in a fatigue state for, Absolutely. for, for the rest of the week? Absolutely, Gym, um, so gymnasts, yeah, yeah. gymnasts train this way. So gymnasts don't do uh, their movements to failure. They do their movements and they practice them a lot. So if you watch a gymnast, uh, you know, you know, practicing rings or whatever. It's a lot of like practice, practice, practice. They're not doing reps to, to failure. Um, mm. If you look at uh, Olympic lifters, Olympic lifters work with barbells and arguably Olympic lifters are probably some of the most powerful, strongest athletes pound for pound that you'll, you'll find. I mean, you've got 180 pound, 185 pound Olympic lifters, you know, clean and jerking 400 pounds or just ridiculous yeah. amounts of weight. They never train to failure. Well, they'll take they'll they'll do a, a weight that's forty percent of their max, and they'll just practice it all day long. And you know they're getting tired, and there's definitely some intensity involved. Don't get me wrong, but they're not you know clean and jerking to failure. Their technique will break down. There's no way they could mm-hmm. do that. So they just practice over and over and over again. And you know, I mean, look at Olympic lifters and look at gymnasts. You know, you, you can you tell me that those guys don't look freaking incredible and and muscular? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. The gymnasts have got to come in the gym. One of my friends' um, wife is a is a physio with um, some some of the gymnasts here in the UK, and they have to come in the gym the next day, so they can't just smash themselves so that they can't. Um, they got so much DOMS that they can't train the next day. They have to That's come right. in day after day after day after day. So um, yeah, it's proof that that sort of works. That's yeah. right. The body responds. The body, the way the body adapts to pretty much anything is uh, is similar. They're, they're all similar. So I'll give you an example. Um, if we examine other forms of adaptation, because an adaptation, the body adapts because it's trying to become more resilient to stress. Otherwise, there's no reason to adapt because adaptation requires uh, the use of energy and resources, and your body's pretty judicial with that. It's not going to utilize resources to adapt to anything because our body's evolved uh, for the most part, under the context of uh, lack of resources, right? So your body's not going to just mm-hmm. use calories or use resources to adapt unless it really thinks it's in its best interest. So, and this is for all forms of adaptation. So, if we examine the body's uh, way of adapting to, say, the sun. So, if you go out in the sun, the uh, the UV rays uh, they create a certain amount of damage on your body, right? And how does your body deal with that damage? Well, it it, it aims and attempts to become more resilient to those UV rays. And the way it does it is by, you know, becoming darker, by becoming tan. This is why you tan. Your body's, a a dark tan body is going to be able to resist or be more resilient to the radiation from the sun than a pale white body is. So that's what your body does. Now, if I want to get a good tan, if I want my body to adapt to the sunlight in a very effective, efficient way, which one is going to produce a better result? If I go out on Monday in the sun and just fry the shit out of myself and get a sunburn, or if I get a little bit of exposure every single day, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same damn thing. The body adapts to resistance training in a very similar way. Hammering the shit out of your body, you know, or a body part once a week and then resting because this whole rest and recover thing has been, uh, it's been uh, communicated totally incorrectly. Like if you... If you go to the gym and beat the shit out of yourself on Monday and then go home and, and lay in bed and don't move, you know, try this out. If you don't believe me, try this out. Go to the gym, beat the crap out of your legs, squat for five hours, go to failure, 
Like, do it in such a way that you know you're going to be so super sore. Go home and then make yourself bedridden for a week, seven days. Don't get out of bed. Give your body all the recovery it could it could possibly deal with. Don't move at all. Let it let it do its job. Go back to the gym a week later, and you know what you're going to find? You're going to be weaker. You're going to have less mm-hmm. muscle, and you're going to be weaker. It's that frequency of signal uh, that that causes adaptation to happen. It's a it's a factor that is ignored, and it is an extremely important factor. And so, going to failure really really takes away from your ability to utilize frequency of training, which arguably is one of the top two most important. You know, intensity and frequency are right up there with each other in terms of, yeah. and they're and they're and they're inversely related. So, you know, I can't train too frequently because then I can't do the intensity that I need. But I definitely can't do too frequent if I just beat the crap out of myself. And going to failure is just too much intensity for most people most of the time. Yeah, and I think with calisthenics, that training to failure can be um, can be quite difficult because often we're trying to do something that feels impossible um, when we haven't like done it. So if I'm trying to learn how to do a planche and I'm not strong enough to do it yet, I'm almost teetering on that edge of of trying to do something that's too hard, try, go into failure too often. Um, and with with that, our um, our, our sort of strap line is redefine your impossible because when me and Tim started, like first time we tried to do a human flag, it felt impossible. But um, as, as we break it down and we learn these things, you start to realize that actually these sort of gravity defying moves don't aren't, aren't actually aren't actually impossible. We just need to figure out how to do them and train effectively for them. Um, and so a final question for you, Sal, was, uh, is there any, what's your impossible or, or do you have any impossibles that you'd, that you'd like to share with us or can we tempt you to try and learn something that might feel <laughs> impossible like a human flag or something like that? You know, I, I really would like to incorporate more uh, body weight movements in my training. Uh, it's something that I haven't applied. I do, I do do body weight training, but I don't n- apply myself nearly as much in that realm as I do with barbells, mainly yeah. because I just love, uh, I love training with barbells. It's what I first started training with. And it's just, you know, we tend to navigate towards what we're good at. And uh, I'm, yeah. I, I'm guilty of that as well. But, you know, I'll tell you something that I learned, uh, you know, that I thought was impossible for me that I learned uh, to do much better. So I, you know, because I was brought up in the muscle building culture, at least because that was my initial motivation, you know, I used to just lift heavy weights for the sake of lifting heavy weights. And I was very focused on bodybuilding training. And so I would use lifting aids like a weight belt and squat shoes and all these different things so that I could lift uh, more weight. And uh, we, you know, because we have this pop, this, this popular podcast, we have a lot of leverage and I'm able to meet incredibly brilliant individuals in our space, which I would never have the ability to do before. So I, I really take advantage of that and I get to ask these people questions. And we had a, a we, we worked with this movement specialist, Dr. Justin Brink, who's just uh, absolutely brilliant. And, you know, before we had him on the show, he assessed us. And so he had to take, had us take our shoes off and stand there barefoot. And he broke, he broke me down. And most of my dysfunction was in my feet, most of it. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, and it was mind blowing to me because I'd never considered, it. I mean, when I would do correctional exercise on people, I'd look at their hips, their shoulders, their spine, you know, I, but I'd, I'd never look at their feet. And he made a very good point. He says, you know, the muscle, the foot, first off, is a very functional part of the body. There's lots of muscles in the foot that have a function. Your toes have a function. And then if you look at the ankles, uh, the, the ankles also have lots of function. And the problem is, is that we've, since the day we were you know, able to walk, we've been put in shoes. And shoes change 
not only the shape of your foot, because if you you can look up hunter gatherer feet, you know modern hunter gatherers feet. Look at their feet; they look very different from you know a modern Western person's foot. Like when you wear shoes your whole life, if you take your shoes off, you look at your foot; your toes are all scrunched together. They're probably yeah, moving. Got horrible feet. Yeah, <laughs> they're probably moving in a particular direction because they've molded to the shoe. You probably have feet that are asleep so you can't you know like you can't do what's called short foot where you shorten your foot through your arch your ankles probably pronate or supinate or do something weird if you run you probably heel strike because we've been conditioned to run in these really cushy shoes which change our recruitment patterns we're not using our feet as shock absorbers the way that they they can be used or they should be used so we've got these very dysfunctional feet well that travels all the way up the kinetic chain so he's looking at me he's breaking me down and he's saying look man if you you, I bet you can't squat nearly as heavy barefoot. And he was right. Like if I go barefoot, I'd have pain in my knees or hips later. And it just felt very, very strange. And I, you know, he would film me and he said, look, your, your, your feet are pronated. You're not connecting to the floor. Like it's just like you have dead feet or dead ankles and the rest of your body's trying to compensate. And so I went through this journey of strengthening and working on the connectivity of my feet and ankles. And it blew me the fuck away. Like my strength, it took me a while. Like I couldn't squat. Uh, I had to go down to squatting. You know, here I was before that routinely squatting with, you know, over 300 pounds. So, you know, hundred and that's probably 130, 140 kilos. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I went down to like a hundred pounds. So here I am now squatting like 40 kilos, like super lightweight. And yeah. I had to go slow and perfect it because any heavier than that, my feet would just turn off yeah. and I'd revert back to my old patterns. And I did this for a long time. And I thought, this is going to be impossible. Like, what's going to happen? I'm, I'm going to lose muscle. I'm going to lose strength now because I can't lift heavy. And is this going to work for me? And I ended up building more muscle. Um, I'm way more connected to now. I feel way better when I squat and move. I've got way better depth in my movements. And I just started, I really, you know, it's practicing what you preach. And I communicated it for so long. But now I had the opportunity to experience it. And um, it's really mind-blowing what mm -hmm. a difference it makes. Yeah. That goes back to reinforces like what we talk about because about going back to that natural form of training and actually you got your feet on the ground and you started doing some more strength-based work and, and you saw the benefits and, and we pushed a lot around uh, the benefits of hanging and, and closed kinetic chain work with having a hand on the ground for, for um, hand balancing and what that the effect that has on the shoulder. But that's probably a bigger subject than one maybe for another day. But it's uh, it's cool that I think, again, there's opportunities within training to humble yourself and not be leave the ego at the door, go back to basics and rebuild for, for a longer term game. When so many times people want to just kind of chase the short term turnaround and wouldn't be wouldn't have the confidence or the, the um, wouldn't have the security in themselves to be able to actually go back to lifting what they would deem to be a small amount of weight with the with the, um, the longer term view of actually building it up into something which is way more. <coughs> Exactly. They, they achieved in the past. Exactly. What I, what I understood that to be was that when we come out to America, to as we were talking about before the show, to, to, to meet you guys, that we're definitely going to teach you how to do human flag. That's how, that's how I interpreted that. We've got to do squats when we go over there, yeah. Dave. Yeah, you're <laughs> going to teach, you're going to teach <laughs> how to do human flag. That's what we're going to yeah, do. Yeah, why, why don't we start with something a little easier? You know what I mean? You get to teach me. No, we taught, we taught a bodybuilder in 45 minutes. So yeah. if you can give us an hour, I'll probably... Probably say we'll teach you. Okay. Yeah. Well, that was well, a challenge. All right. All right. That sounds good. <laughs> that feels impossible, right? <laughs> yeah. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Hey, w worst case scenario, 
I fail miserably and we have a viral YouTube video, so I don't care. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I reckon you might surprise yourself. So I just want to thank you massively for spending some time with us today and, and just giving us some great insights. You've covered a huge amount of stuff in there. Um, and I'm sure we're going to get a load of questions off that. But for everybody that's listening, if you guys go over and check out Mind Pump, um, I think what the guys are doing is, a, is an awesome job of dispelling the myths in the, in the fitness industry that make it complicated. Um, it sounds like Sally from a very similar school of thought, thought to us and, and, and providing information evidence-based which you can back up and cutting through some of the rubbish um, in the industry but we'll put some um, some notes for and contact details in the in the show notes and Instagram followers um, we'll, we'll put your, your, your link to your Instagram and social media channels on there as well so thanks again Sal we really appreciate your time excellent thank you very much gentlemen appreciate it no problem so until next time guys class dismissed thanks for listening to this week's podcast if you've enjoyed it, guys, we'd really appreciate a five-star review on iTunes. And if you want to put a one-star one on that sort of fine, we'll just delete it. <laughs> Until next time, class dismissed. <laughs>